Join us for PR Safari, a podcast by Center for Public Relations. PR Safari, your ultimate guide to navigate the complex PR landscape in Africa. Find us at www.cpr.africa. Hello, my name is Chris Wangalua. Our guest and guide is Dr. Wilfred Marube, outgoing CEO, Kenya Export Promotion and Branding Agency, and former president, Public Relations Society of Kenya. Wilfred Marube found himself in this space by accident. I will have accidents, yes. yeah. <laughs> I never totally intended to be a PR practitioner. I'd wanted to be a journalist, but I never had an opportunity of training to be a journalist. I remember after I joined a university, that's Moy University, in 1993, a first-year student. I had been selected for a course, a Bachelor's of Education in English and Literature. And during that time is when my interest, basically to be a journalist, I was born. Because naturally I, I was good in languages. At some point I'd finished reading all the novels at the Kissy Library. All the novels, you could think about any book in the library yes. that was called a storybook. Yes. That was between 1985 mm-hmm. and 1988. So when I was in university, there was a, a course from the UK. Yes. Which was, uh, there was no online, but you could do it. Uh, you, you were given study materials. I spent about 5,000 shillings then, which was quite a lot of money. To okay. register for that course. Yeah, I can imagine 5,000 in yeah, the 80s. Yeah. No, no, that's in 1993. Okay. I was a first year in the university. For university. Yeah, the guys of Boom and... and yeah, no, we got a bit of Boom. 53, yeah. We used to call it 5,380. 5,300 okay. shillings and 80. Uh-huh. That's what we got then. But uh, what happens is that uh, I never pursued it further. I realized at university, there's much more in university than studying. Let me have fun. <laughs> so I gave up on that. I started having fun and everything else. And that's how my basically dream of being a journalist. Okay. So the dream came much later when I had done my degree and I had uh, gotten into teaching. I got into teaching high school. So I taught in, in Kisumu, Rural, mm-hmm. a place called Dago. Dago Kokari. There's Dago. The Dago is where I lived. Okay. But the school was called Bar Union. Ah, Bar Union. Yes, I know it. place called Nyahera. That's where I first taught. So after teaching, then I said, I think now I need to find something to do to take me closer to the journalism career that I wanted. At that time, there was no master's in journalism or MA, communication, something like that. There was in there. And being a teacher, I could not be given a study leave to study anything else. So an opportunity arose that Ijaton University was starting what we call a school-based program, whereby you start a master's program during the school holidays in 2003. Then I said, let me study master's in linguistics because that is the closest that I can get to journalism. So during the master's class, when I was studying a course known as a discourse analysis, I was looking at a theory known as a, the critical theory. We had a very good lecture in that area, Professor Onyango. That's when I first came into manipulative communication. I was intrigued with that aspect that how can you engage in communication in a manipulative manner? So that excited <laughs> me. You see, that was different from journalism, which uh, I yes. wanted to do, which yes. was basically about reporting objectively. You've, I get that your DNA <laughs> had some connivance. Probably, yes. Uh-huh. So that's how my first interest in PR and my first interaction with the word public relations okay. came into being. It should have been about 2005. And out of that idea, I said, I want to be this guy who is able to manipulate people. Mm. Yes. I'm not saying that's what I believe in, yeah, but yeah, out of that ignorance that's then, interesting to hear. Yes. And knowing that I was looking at it from a critical perspective, yes, yes. the critical mm-hmm. theory perspective, uh-huh. whereby you look at how people within power abuse it yes. and even use communication to manipulate yes. and do everything else. Mm-hmm. So out of that, I told myself, I want to study public relations. I looked around, where can I study public relations? Then there was the Kenya Institute of Management, 2005. And then I went to the Kisi College. They had a Kisi campus, or Kisi branch, so to speak. 
And I told them I want to study public relations. I told me you can't study public relations because mm-hmm. no one else is studying it. There were two lectures. But they had the course. Yeah, they had the course. They said okay. they have two lectures. They could teach. Then I told them no. I told them what do I require for me to study the course? They told me we need a minimum class of three. And I told them I'm going to pay fees for three people. Wow. So basically, I paid triple fees for me to study. From which course as you are a teacher? Of course, being a teacher, I was a member of Mwalimu Sako, so I was on loan after loan. I was used to taking <laughs> loans. I never even had money for anything. Just study, study, study. Okay. Yeah, very interesting. It's called conviction. Uh-huh. Yes. So basically, I paid. Fees that particular time was about 40-something thousand. It came to about 100-something thousand. I think I paid in two bits. I paid 60-something. Mm-hmm. The course began. So I think within one or two weeks, I had one or two lecturers. They could come with a book. I think they had a photocopy of a book. They come and take me through all those, uh, the history of PR, Edward yeah. and mm-hmm. all that. But then I realized that uh, we were basically learning together with them. Uh-huh. Uh, being the teacher I am and the student. Yes, yes. And I asked myself now, what do I do? Let me look for books. So I came all the way to Nairobi. Kajan Institute Management had a library in South Sea. I got a book by Jeffkins. I photocopied it. I went back. That's the era when there were cybers. So going to the cyber, downloading material from the internet. At some point, I think the teachers basically gave up on me. They realized that uh, basically they're not doing me any service. Yeah. So they could just ask me, prepare this, let's come and discuss. Because mm. they found that I'd gone ahead of them, yeah. as I told you. So that's how I studied PR. I was self-taught. And then I read any book you could think about. Whichever book you could think about, whichever material you would think about in public relations. So that's how I found myself in this particular space. Fast forward, you are at uh, AG. I was at the office of the Auditor General where I was recruited to help establish the Public Relations and Communications Office. Everybody I'm speaking to appears to have established the department. Does that mean that the government somehow didn't have these units? Or what is the story of institutionalization of communication departments in these institutions? I think if you look at the years, the period between early 2000 to maybe 2015, I would say it was a time of establishing communication offices outside mainstream government. Other public institutions had probably had people who were doing communication, but they were not basically competent in that area. Uh-huh. So I helped establish the office. I was alone for a long time. And within my time at the office, our job was basically to make the institution more visible. Mm-hmm. The office of the Director General became extremely visible. But apart from that, even the media got interested a lot in reporting audit findings. And within that period is when we were able to publish a book, actually a guide. It's a media handbook on reporting audit findings. Because I asked Ah. myself, how do we support the media to make those in offices, that is uh, the accounting officers, feel that uh, the media is doing a service? Because most of them felt that the media was basically sensationalizing. No, the media needs to understand the audit process, needs to understand what it means to audit. That's the only way they can be able to report. And out of that, I think you've seen over the period, of course, even with, with also my predecessor and everybody else coming in, you've seen that the media is basically focused now on reporting audit findings. Yes. They don't say that funds have been stolen or something yeah. like that. No. Mm-hmm. The, the issue is you are unaccounted for or something. So I would say that's what I was able to contribute during that time, that uh, everybody got interested in audit findings. We helped the media report. And of course, the department grew. Right now, I think I'm told there are about almost 12 people in the department. Ah, interesting. From department. one person who served yes. for a very long time. <laughs> yes, <laughs> for about five. No, but I served there for about a, a six months before the other members came in. What is critical and what I've learned over a period now, I'm talking as a, both as a practitioner and also having been a CEO and also having been the president of PRSK, yeah. is the issue when you are CEOs or when your bosses, your bosses trust on you is threatened. 
-hmm. I think for me that is basically the highest risk I would say that practitioners face. Because we need our bosses, those we report to, to trust us, to trust our judgment, to trust our ability to deliver. And sometimes, especially when there's a crisis, and probably that uh, the crisis is unable to go away, and I'm not talking as a CEO or anyone else, yeah. that some of the bosses we have, or some of us, when there's a crisis, you never want to solve it. You want to bury your head in the sand. And you pray and hope that the PR practitioner or the communication expert within the organization is going to carry out some magic to make the crisis go away. And when it doesn't go away, sometimes people may say, ah, this guy is not loyal to you. Why did they allow this to happen? My entire career, that has been the biggest threat to the trust between the boss and the practitioner. And I think for me, that's very critical. I'm not talking f- having worn all shoes. That becomes a very, very big problem for the communicator. Because a lot of times I've, been, I've worked with organizations, especially in government, who there's a disconnect between the CEO and the communication person. Even that reach appears to be distant. There needs to be that trust and that connection. And how do you advise should be the way to go about it? I would say also having been a CEO, having won the shoes of a CEO, it's something that you never be taught in class. The excellent communicator must be a good mind reader. You must understand your boss. You must read their mind. You must know what is important for them. You must know which challenge or which issue are they grappling with at the moment. You might find that sometimes that your priorities as a communicator and the priorities of the CEO are totally different. So you have to be in the mind of the CEO, be in the shoes of the CEO. If the CEO knows that you feel them and you mind them and that uh, you are loyal to them and whatever you are doing it, you are doing for their own interest and for the benefit of the organization, I do believe that connection will be there. But seldom, I would say that without fear contradiction, that most practitioners, you find that their agenda and their priorities are totally different from the priorities of the CEO. So get a way of getting to know what's disturbing the CEO for this particular quarter. What are the issues that the board wants him to deliver, the minister wants him to deliver? What are the challenges they are facing? And then how does communication support your CEO to overcome that? I believe once, once somebody does that, then there is a connection. And the other thing I've realized also being a CEO now, now that you're talking about communication, and maybe that's an area that I've taken a lot of interest in, is that communicators never have time for their CEOs. The focus is on the corporate, the brand, the organization, at the expense of promoting the brand of the CEO. And then probably which asks a question, can the CEO exist without the organization? The answer is yes. Mm -hmm. The personality. Because the CEO's brand needs to come out as distinct and as part of the organization. And I think that's a challenge. And I won't blame the communicators. Because number one, there's too much expected from them. The internal communication bit the external communication bit where they look at, they're focusing on the corporate, but basically who focuses on what I would say leadership or the executive communication. You ask yourself this week, how do I want people to perceive my CEO? How do I want him to act or behave? CEOs, again, you know, sometimes don't have time. How do you interest them and have them sit down for five minutes because whatever you want to do with them, maybe the kind of interview you want to have with them, is so important basically for their personal image and for their corporate brand. I've also observed they waste so many opportunities that would have given the CEO positive visibility, positive branding and everything else because their hands are very full. I think for me that is a gap I've noticed for the two years I've sat as a CEO. Probably going to the future in the organization, maybe there should be somebody probably assigned. Dedicated. Dedicated. Yes. CEO champion sort of. I get you. Because the CEO is an institution. The CEO focuses all his attention on the corporate. Yes. And they forget about themselves. Yes. Talk to us about Brand Kenya now. 
Okay, let me talk about the Kitex Sports Promotion and Branding Agency. Very interesting time. A combination of both nation branding aspects and also export promotion. I came into the organization at the peak of COVID, that is in June 2020. The worst time. Yeah, the worst time. And then we realized, number one, the institution was not known. People were not interested in exports. The media was not interested in exports. The same question I asked myself, how do I get people who are not necessarily exporting be interested in exports? Because for me, exports was a big thing because that's the only way you can transform the country. And again, how do I get the media to appreciate that, that exports are important? The same routine, capacity building. We engaged in a series of capacity building programs with the media to get them interested. But most importantly, we ask ourselves as an institution, how do we get known? And out of that, when I came into the organization, I found that they had a mantra, a mantra which had been coined by the chairman, a very visionary uh, chair that is uh, just Betty. It was talking about mad. He said that all employees have to be mad. That means make a difference. Mm -hmm. But as a CEO, I asked myself, it's good to be mad. But then the question is, I say, how do I get mad? Mm -hmm. And out of how do I get mad, I came up with also another mantra, which I add stuff. Even right now, it's something that I apply on, on my personal conduct, on my personal ventures. By Revido, that is R-E-V-I-D-O. I mean, it's relevance. Mm -hmm. How do you become relevant? We have to create relevant. You have to be relevant to the stakeholders. You have to be relevant to your partners. You have to be relevant to an issue that is of national interest. How do you become relevant as an organization? Let us be relevant as an organization. Then the other thing became visible. Let us be visible, as visible as possible. Right now, if you get to the digital platform, I don't think there's any, probably, probably KRA or maybe DCI. But there's nobody who is much more corporate, much more visible within the digital platform than the Kenya Export Promotion Branding Agency. And then there was the DO, that it was dominance. Let us dominate whichever space we operate in. But not just about dominating, we dominate through excellence. Let us be so good at what we do that we have no competitors. If it's about branding, let's be good at national branding. If it's about export promotion, let us be so good at that. So that's what we did. So within that mantra, it helped us now focus on our stakeholders. And within that period, we were able actually to mobilize a lot of support from our partners. Like we had an exporters portal, mm -hmm. whereby almost 50% of the cost was scattered by our development partners. Uh -huh. Something that we did. And then we realized that uh, within that particular period, that there is a challenge on driving the national branding. Because the national branding space has too many players, if you ask me. It's something that's being done by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. They basically represent yes. the image and the national brand. It's uh, being executed by the Kenya Tourism Board. It's being executed by... Uh, Even the trade, ESC. Investment, ESC, and everybody else. Then we said it's so difficult to create an harmonized brand because of too many players in the space. And one of the weaknesses we identified, and I do believe going forward is something that uh, the government is going to handle, is that we don't have a national branding policy. Because once we have a national branding policy... It actually streamlines and brings everybody under one policy movement. That means it's very easy to say, for instance, as Kenya Export Promotion and Branding Agency, we can see where is domicile within the, within the Ministry of Trade. Mm -hmm. But you see, Ministry of Trade will be, will be more interested only in exports, yes. not the national branding part. Mm -hmm. But if there was a policy, a national branding policy, it would be so easy because we have a national trade policy. We don't have a national branding policy. So that's one of the lessons that I learned from there that without policy, you won't be able to do much. We tried developing an integrated marketing communication strategy for positioning the country, for positioning the organization, and also for promoting the exports. Because we believed 
that once we have a, a strategy, even if we share it with our stakeholders, even other government agencies, all of you will be moving towards the same direction. The other thing that we realized during that my particular period, I was in office for about, um, let's say, before I took my break, for about two, maybe two years and about uh, eight months. Mm-hmm. Is basically we realize that the small and medium enterprises are the guys who require our help. The big corporates have a budget. They're big enough. They're big enough. <laughs> they can access markets. So yeah. focus on that. Out of that, we develop what we call the Exporters Academy. We're getting people get interested in export trade, telling you that you can become an exporter even if you have no product. Yeah. You get interested first yes. before you know what opportunities are there. So we also developed the Exporters Directory. We never yeah. had one centralized document. You can, if somebody asks you, who is exporting mangoes? Where? It was difficult getting it, but right now those are some of the things that we're able to do within that particular period. But most importantly is basically ensuring that you add value to the small and medium enterprise. But the hallmark of it all was Dubai Expo 2020, uh-huh. where I was the Commissioner General for Dubai Expo 2020. Very tough, dealing with the multi-stakeholders, with the competing interests, and yet there's a national agenda. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that is, it's a story for another day. I mean, not want to discuss, but it's a story for another day. When you retire, you'll it write a book a, about it. It was a headache. Yes. But we pull it through. It was a headache. Okay. And that's when I realized that sometimes when you have a national assignment, when we are focusing on the goal, not everybody else is focusing on the goal. There are basically people who want to ensure that when you are supposed to be heading north, they won't take you east. And deliberately yes, so. Yes, they don't want you to shine. But we did very well. We delivered. We delivered the Dubai Expo 2020. It was, of, it was one of my challenging periods <laughs> in that period, I would say. What are you doing now? I'm just um, relaxing, doing a bit of reading, doing a few things at home. Uh, because since I joined the CEO on the 2nd June 2020, I never took my leave. So I had 95 days. What? Leave days. I've never, t- I'd never taken leave. Is that tedious? It was tedious. Anytime I wanted to take a break, I would be advised either by my board or by my peers, this is not the right time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just hold on, hold on, hold on. So right now I'm just resting. And then, of course, trying to think from me, what else do I do? It's very difficult to mm-hmm. leave CEO position to go mm-hmm. to any other position. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. Um, I think the problem is about the CEO. The mm. problem would be about the other people. Would the other people be comfortable reporting to them, having known that you're a CEO? Yes. And would they be comfortable you giving an opinion or your your independent view in a meeting yeah because <laughs> i think that is something about transition but the, but the good thing about those of us who operated in the academia you're able to transit yes easy. ah that's it's fine for you it's, yes it's, it's very easy to basically not, i mean magoha did it yes everybody does yeah. it because um, it's not just just about bragging but somebody who has a, a phd most of the time, they are very good people at self-reflection. Yes. You're able to analyze yourself. You're able to analyze the situation. You're able basically to adapt. It's very easy for me to go back to class. Actually, I'm in class teaching as we speak. Ah, nice. Yes. It's, it's very easy for me to go back to class because yes. it's about sharing knowledge. It's about so that I see that aspect of being a CEO as one of my learnings. Maybe focus communication programs or training programs focusing on the CEO and how to support them. Yeah. So transition is not easy. But it's fairly easy for people who have an academic orientation. I would say that. You are a president of the Public Relations Society of Kenya. How was your experience? I know there are challenges and there are good moments, achievements. Tell us. I would say the time I served as the vice president of the PRSK. Let me say from about 2017 
to about uh, 2022. From 2017, in my own view, I would say that was a golden era for the public relations society of Kenya. There was renewed interest and vigor. This is when you were under Jane Gitao, yes, right? I would say it all began from 2017. Okay. Renewed vigor, renewed interest. People wanting to make a, a difference to the society. Our members and practitioners want to redefine what public relations is and also earn respect within the workplace and everywhere else. So it's been that period that when we served as a vice president that uh, I remember as a turning point when we developed the first strategic plan. By first strategic plan, I mean documented plan. Okay. Previously there were plans, but they were never documented because you can only critique what has been it was documented. In the, the plan was in the head. <laughs> yeah, so the first documented plan for the population search of Kenya, which clearly identified the focus areas who we needed to recruit and so many other things. That was the first step. And again, there was a renewed vigor. Everybody was interested in the state of affairs. Members were demanding for accountability, which of course was a watershed during that particular period. Because as leaders and as people in office, we felt that we needed to open up more to members. And I would say that was really a golden period. And very many people came up wanting to serve. We did our bit during that particular time. Especially when I was uh, the president for the Public Relations Society of Kenya, I knew that members had a clamor to get uh, the public relations law. And you know, lawmaking process can be tedious. From my own orientation, uh, being the president, I felt that uh, there was need to take a two-pronged approach. The peer law would be the ultimate goal. But I felt that in between, what would be able to earn us respect without the law? So that's how the idea of having a certification program was born. Then we said, developing a certification program is within the control of the Public Relations Society of Kenya. Because if members get certification, then you start earning respect, even within your peers, your profession, and everybody else, while we pursue the law. They also spearheaded recruitment of the CEO. Then we said, as our job as council members is basically to provide advice. Okay. To play oversight, then how do we play oversight yet you get involved in the day-to-day -day operations? So now there is a CEO, there's somebody who is accountable. During this time, I've also seen a lot of also renewed interest again, even after my term. You could see that members really want to participate. And I'm sure President Tariq, as the year rolls out and everything else, we're going to see quite a lot. So I would say that uh, the PRSK has grown. I've seen it grow. I've seen it grow in terms of numbers, but most importantly, in terms of interest from members. Members are interested in getting to know what happens in the society. I think that's very key. Thank you very much. And uh, we are glad that you made the time. And looking forward to have many, many more discussions. Okay, thank you very much. Asante. Karibu.